I'm sorry, First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 21. But let's ask the Lord's blessing upon the reading of his word before we hear from him. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, our Heavenly Father, we come again before you, confessing, professing that this is your word, breathed out by you, and given to us as your covenant people. And yet, Lord God, we are often hard of hearing. And so we ask that your gracious spirit would grant us grace this day, and that you would give us ears to hear and hearts that are ready and willing to receive and to believe what you have to tell us therein. And we pray, Lord God, that you would magnify your son in our midst, and that the good news of the gospel as it is presented in him would come again to us. And Lord, that we would find hope and life in believing. And so we ask, Father, grace for your people and for the one who speaks on your behalf in order that your name might be magnified in all the earth. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. First Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 13. Please do give your full attention. This is God's word. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who calls you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. For if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear, uh, with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the death and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God indeed endures forever. Well, Elder Mitchell and I uh, just returned from the 47th General Assembly of our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. And among other things that went on, this annual meeting is a time uh, to reconnect with other ministers of the gospel. And for some, it is the only time of the year to do so. And it is indeed a great benefit when we can come together and meet with one another. And when we meet together, usually we talk about life in ministry, we talk about our churches, uh, I brag about the love of the saints of my church, others try to do the same thing, um, and we talk about the joys and blessings that the Lord allows us in this life. And usually at some point, in the catching up and in the discussion that pastors have over a meal and they share over coffee, we talk as well about the negative aspects of ministry. Most of you know that one of the aspects, one of the things that a pastor is called to do is to refute errors, to refute errors. 
There's a positive and then there's a negative component to what the minister is called to do. We are to proclaim the gospel and we are to refute lies. One of the key components of the Christian faith that the church has needed to defend for 2,000 years is the doctrine of the atonement. The doctrine of the atonement. Today's sermon will concern ourselves with that vital truth of the Christian faith, the atonement of Jesus Christ, the atonement of Christ. Uh, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, summed up in his uh, his preaching in this way: First Corinthians two, verse two. He said, "For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified." We read about these things. Throughout the right, uh, throughout the read, throughout the, the the books of the New Testament, the preaching of the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the shed blood of Christ, the atonement of Christ. And we have to realize these aren't many different things that are being talked about, but they all speak of one and the same thing. The message of the cross is nothing less than the message of salvation for His people. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, we read this. Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So this morning we'll look at the subject of the cross, the atonement of Christ, in its larger context of our series that we've been working through, the doctrines of grace, the five petals of Calvinism, if you were, the five petals of the flower of grace, Tulip, right? We've already considered the T, total depravity. The doctrine of total depravity that tells us that the sinfulness of each child of Adam, it is all polluting within the human soul. And every faculty of the human soul is under the dominion of sin. It is indeed infected with sin and influenced by sin. Given the choice in that fallen state, no man or woman would choose or could choose to believe in Jesus Christ because turning to God in that state, man in that state, is foolish to their darkened understanding and is indeed revolting to their sin-loving hearts. As the Bible says, no man seeks after God. And in Jeremiah, human nature cannot change to do good since it is accustomed to doing evil. And therefore, left to ourselves, we are unable to choose God and we are unwilling to come to Christ for salvation, left to ourselves. We are indeed, as we're described by Scripture, spiritually dead, in bondage to sin in our mind, in our heart, and in our will. And this fallen condition is the reason for the necessity of the intervening grace of the triune God in salvation. And this brings us to the necessary work of God the Father in the next letter, the U, unconditional election. That says that in eternity past, before the creation of the world, the Father, God the Father, chose, according to His own good pleasure, to save a host of people to the praise of His glorious grace. This elect host of people, He chose how? Unconditionally. Unconditionally. And we saw in the previous message what, that, what God's Word says when it says that. What it means when it says that. It means that God chose without any considerations or any conditions in the creature, but rather according to what? According to his own designs and according to his own love that he set upon a people of his choosing. 
We saw in Ephesians chapter 1, recall, it says, In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. And so T, total depravity. U, unconditional election. And then now this morning we come to the letter L of that flower, tulip. L, limited atonement. Limited atonement. By limited atonement, we mean that Christ did not die on the cross for all men that have ever lived. But rather what? We say that he died for the elect. He died for that, he died for that host um, out of all of humanity that the Father chose to give him. And so the scope of the atonement is limited to those chosen, to the elect. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, This is my blood of the covenant, which is shed on behalf of many for the forgiveness of sins, of many for the forgiveness of sins. And indeed, this is a doctrine that is difficult for many to discuss, let alone uh, assent to, to believe in. Why is that? Why is this such a difficult doctrine for so many people to hold? Well, in part it is because many in the American church have placed such a low value and undervalued church history. We have forgotten what we have been through. We have forgotten what we have uh, the challenges that we have fought in the church. It is a sad fact that many think that ancient church history is speaking of the 19th century. It is not. There's lots of history before that. Uh, another reason is that we are very much influenced by those distinctives those that identify and shape who we are uh, as Westerners, specifically as Americans. Right? Individualism, pragmatism, these things indeed, and other factors, they color uh, the lenses, they discolor the lenses with which we interpret all of life, including theology. We've been so inundated with such a bombardment of teaching that Christ indeed died universally for all men who have ever lived without discrimination. But always, what must we do? What is our calling as followers of Jesus Christ? We must be diligent to examine the scriptures carefully. What does God's word say? We must not allow ourselves to be ruled by emotional considerations. Or what we have, may have superficially just accepted because of simple tradition that we may have heard or grown up in or been familiar with. And so this morning we will be looking, we'll be considering this great doctrine of the atonement. Christ's limited atonement. His particular atonement. By answering three questions, three questions as we work through this. First question, what is the atonement? What is the atonement? Second question, what did the cross accomplish? What was accomplished at the cross? And then thirdly, for whom did Christ die? For whom did Christ die? So what is the atonement? What did the cross accomplish? And then for whom did Christ die? So with that, let's take a very brief look at this first question what is the atonement? What does that mean? The word atonement comes from the Old Testament word, uh, which means to cover, to cover. Uh, we see this word used in places like Genesis 6, verse 14, when God gave Noah instructions regarding the ark, right, to build the ark. He told him to cover it inside and out with pitch, to cover. That's the word that it comes from, the word atonement. It's the word for atonement, to cover. Uh, the yearly day of atonement with which, uh, of which we read about in the Old Testament 
was a time when the high priest, you'll remember, offered two goats. Remember two goats, one as a scapegoat to be sent out, to be sent out of the camp and into the wilderness, and the other as a sin offering for Israel, the people of God. And the goat given for that sin offering was an atonement, was a covering for the sins of Israel, a covering. The blood of this atonement was taken and it was sprinkled upon the mercy seat or the seat of propitiation as it is called. And the atonement for sins was the offering of the life, right, of the blood of that sacrificial animal. In the book of Hebrews, if you've been coming to Sunday school, Dr. Mitchell has been speaking of this um, quite extensively. Uh, in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews tells us that through the Day of Atonement, through the many sacrifices of the Old Testament, a great lesson was taught to the people. Right? This, this, this instructed the people of God. And that was what? The main lesson was that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That same book of Hebrews also tells us, teaches us that all these animal sacrifices could, in reality, never provide for forgiveness. They could never provide for cleansing. Hebrews tells us that these, what they actually did, they symbolically looked forward to a far greater atonement. And that was the sacrificial offering of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And so in reality, the word atonement only begins to scratch the surface of what Christ really accomplished on the cross for his people. Glorious good news indeed. But it's in the cross of Christ that we find total and complete resolution of the wrath of God against sin. And in the cross of Christ, we find a bright and shining revelation of the wonder of his love for sinners. Certainly there is much, much more that we could look at and talk about in the glories, the complexities of all of this. But to meet our task this morning with this brief understanding of what the atonement is, let's proceed now out of the shadows of the Old Testament and into the descriptive words of the New Testament and begin to answer our second question for today. Our second question, which is what did the cross accomplish? What was accomplished in the cross? Well, first the cross of Jesus Christ accomplished our salvation by fully satisfying the demands of the creation covenant, the sanctions of that covenant for us. Secondly, the cross of Christ actually and really redeemed a people, not potentially, not possibly, not hypothetically. It actually accomplished a people, redeemed a people for God. <clears throat> There's a glorious <clears throat> description of this in the Gospel of Luke. You recall Zechariah, the father of John. Remember, he is made mute. Uh, he is made mute because of his disbelief by the angel, and he can't speak for all of that time through the uh, the pregnancy of John, right? And when his silence is broken, when his mouth is let loose and he's able to speak again, what is the first thing he says, you recall? What does he say? What does he break his silence with? He says this in Luke chapter 1, verse 68. The words out of his mouth, uh, verse 67 says, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying this, verse 68, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Right? What did he do? He accomplished redemption 
for his people. And so that's what we're going to look at, right? Again, each person that is born, let's look at the first part of that. The cross accomplished redemption. It accomplished our salvation by fully satisfying the demands of the covenant, right? Creation, covenant, the sanctions for us, it satisfied that, right? Every person in the world is born a covenant being. He's a creature in covenant with the Lord, with God. He is born under obligation to God to trust and to obey in thought, word, and deed. And from the moment of conception until the moment of his death, every human is responsible to complete covenantal loyalty to God. The covenant binds us to the full range of our obligations to God, our creator. And this is part and parcel of being made in the image of God. Right, the Imago Dei, we're made in the image of God. This is, this is part and parcel of what that is. We are made to reflect that image ethically in a life of trust and loving obedience to God's law. We know the sad news that because of our federal head, our covenant head Adam, his failure to keep the covenant with God, we are what? By nature, totally depraved. We are radically corrupt. And therefore, all are under the judgment of God regarding this creation covenant, this covenant of works. We are creatures, as it has been described, with lives under sanction. Lives under sanctions. Right, what are sanctions? That's another, uh, another word that some find technical. Sanctions are the consequences of the covenant. God gives a covenant, and he gives sanctions, consequences, to either keeping or not keeping that covenant. They're the consequences, the results of keeping or failing to keep the stipulations of the covenant. Those consequences are either blessing for keeping life or cursing for failing the covenant, death. They are simply the judgment of God in either blessing or cursing. And to live life under sanctions means that everything we do will be judged thoroughly and it will be thoroughly evaluated someday and we will receive the just reward according to the strict standards of God's law. Heaven must be earned. Right? Heaven must be earned. It's always been that way. It has never changed. As we read in Romans 2, verse 6, it tells us that God will render to every man according to his works. But under this covenant of works, the situation, that we have two big problems as we look at this. We have two problems. And these two problems should horrify us. Right? These are not small matters. They are monumental problems. The first problem is this. We are born sinful and guilty in Adam. We are born sinful and guilty in Adam. The second problem is that we practice sin. We violate the law of God in thought, in word, and deed as a way of life. We are born in debt and we continually add to that debt all of our lives by sinning. And so far from the groundless optimism of so many, so many who pretend to be comfortable just making things up, from thin air, and they think that all is okay. Far from that, what is the actual message from the Bible? What's the actual message that we get uh, derived from the biblical data that we've been looking at? Well, the message to every human being who is hoping that they have been good enough to meet God's approval when their life is over is this. The actual biblical data says in Deuteronomy 26, 27, rather, cursed be anyone who does not confirm 
the words of this law by doing them. They're cursed. The sanctions of the covenant for any disobedience, it's very clear. It is cursing. It is damnation. It is death. It is wrath. It's very bad news. Again, Scripture tells us, Romans chapter 4, the law brings about wrath. And in Ephesians 2, we are by nature children of wrath, sons of disobedience. Man's sinful nature and disobedience to God's law has landed him under the curse, under eternal damnation and the just wrath of God. And so what, are the command, what is the covenant demands? Right? It demands, right, which every human being is obligated to, is more than anyone can bear because everyone is a sinner. Again, remember, unwilling and unable to keep the covenant of works. This is why this is so very important for you to embrace Jesus Christ and his atonement for sinners. Do you grasp that, brothers and sisters? Do you grasp it? We must flee to Jesus. We must flee to his accomplishment that accomplished redemption. Because the cross of Jesus has accomplished and fulfilled that which you would not nor could not do. In the cross, Jesus has fulfilled the demands of that creation covenant perfectly. And by doing so, he's opened the door to a new covenant in him. In him. Listen to what Paul says about Christ's atonement in Galatians 3. Galatians 3, verse 13, Paul says this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written... Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Right? That word redeemed, it means to buy or to purchase with a price. That's what Christ did. The very price we owe to God for satisfaction of the demands of his law was paid by Jesus Christ. God's law demands obedience. Right? Heaven must be earned. Christ earned it. He paid it. He exemplified it in his entire and perfect life of obedience. And in his death on the cross. I hope you're understanding the weight of what's going on here. God's violated law demands the sanctions of the curse. What are the sanctions of the curse? The just wrath of God. It is his wrath and it is just. Christ paid that with the sacrifice of his perfect life on the cross. On the cross, Paul says here, that he became a curse for us. He became a curse for us. Christ became a substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. A substitute for us. Christ became, once and for all time, what those Old Testament animals, the lambs and the goats, anticipated but could not accomplish. And what was that? A full, sacrificial satisfaction for sin. That's what Christ accomplished. Listen again to part of our New Testament reading this morning from the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1, 18. Again, listen to what he says. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, you were ransomed. Christ's love was perfect. It was flawless. It totally and completely satisfied every demand of the law of God. It was, as Peter said here, unblemished and spotless. 
No other blood but the blood of Christ is precious. Precious here has to do with value or worth, like we call gold and silver, precious metals, right? Or gemstones, we call them precious stones. It means costly, it means valuable. And there's only ever been one blood that matches that weight of precious and costly and valuable that can pay indeed the demands of our redemption. And that precious blood is the blood of Jesus Christ. His blood and his alone can pay the price to redeem us. And if you belong to him, that is exactly what has happened for you, dear Christian. And that is a glorious thing. Once that price is paid, once that blood is shed, we go free. We go free. And that is true of you. You are free from your sins. You are free from eternal damnation. We stand back and we see the salvation of God in this. Christ redeemed us. It is a glorious thing, dear Christian. At the moment of his death, Jesus said in John 19, it is finished. It is finished. His meaning is it is paid in full. The covenantal and legal debt that we owe to God was paid with the price of precious blood so that we are what? We are redeemed. We are redeemed. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Notice those glorious words at the end of that verse. Having become a curse for us. And this sums up that idea. Again, that technical word, a propitiatory sacrifice. To make propitiation is to offer a sacrifice to satisfy divine wrath. Divine wrath is God's righteous judgment in the curse of the broken law. But listen to, listen to the wonderful good news of 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to satisfy the divine wrath against us. The wrath and curse of God was fully and completely appeased in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. He took the wrath. He took the curse for us, it says. And in doing so, he what? He unites the wrath and the love of God in the cross. Glorious thing. And right here is the idea of substitution. If I had been smarter in planning this, I would have had us sing that wonderful hymn, Man of Sorrows, What a Name. You're familiar with this hymn, well-known hymn. Uh, The second stanza of that hymn says this, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, In my place condemned he stood, Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. In our place condemned he stood. And that's it. And hear from God's holy word again. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Speaking of this glorious exchange that happens. <clears throat> it says this, for our sake, 
He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see it here? Do you see what these verses are telling us? It is the heart of the gospel. Follow me here, brothers and sisters. Listen to what is being said here. Listen to what went on in the upper room. In the upper room, Jesus gives his disciples the cup of his blessing. He says, drink the sweet fellowship that I have with the Father. My peace I give to you. My joy I give to you. My glory I pray for you. And he pressed the cup into the hands of the disciples and he says, take Drink of it, all of you. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus tremblingly takes the cup from his Father's hand. The cup the prophets spoke of. The cup of God's wrath against sin. The cup of judgment. And he drinks it to the dregs. And he cries out on the cross, My God, I am forsaken. Why? Why? Why, my son? Because I am making you to be sin. Although you knew no sin, that those who come and cast themselves on you and are found in you, they may be my very righteousness. And they may be reconciled to me by the power of the gospel. Have you grasped that, brothers and sisters? The glory of the message of the atonement, of reconciliation, of that great exchange that took place on the cross. Have you grasped it? The glory and the wonder that was brought by the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. That's what this is. His life for your life. His death for your death. That's what the cross accomplished. And you grasp that in Christ, this is the exchange that is offered to you. I pray that you have both understood this and that you have received it with joy and awe and wonder and thanks and praise. If you have not, I plead with you, come, come to Jesus, come to Jesus, take his life and he will take your death. Brothers and sisters, grasp that unfathomably wonderful accomplishment for you in Christ. Right? Again, the hand of eternal blessing bestowed upon his son falls on you. Why? Because the hand of his judgment and curse fell upon the son of his eternal love. The result of Christ's work is that great exchange which renders you the righteousness of God. We'll finish up our last question on the atonement next week. But for now, I want you to feel the weight of the gospel in all of this. It is glorious, is it not? Do you think that you are too far gone for God's mercy? Do you think that Christ's atonement couldn't deal with your wickedness, be it ever so dark and bleak? Do you think that you are too far, far too sinful For this Redeemer. Or do you think. Dear Christian. That you have blown it so grievously. That you have sinned your way. Out of salvation in Jesus. Have you thought that? 
You think that you have just been too heinous or too awful for this Savior. Hear me in this, dear Christian. None of those upon whom God has sent His love are irredeemable or have outsinned His love. There is yet hope for you. And Christian, there is yet hope again for you. Flee to Him. Give yourselves to the one who will never let you go. God provided for all of our needs. And He pleads, brothers and sisters, come to me. Come to me first again and always. Come to me. Remember, brothers and sisters, these glorious things. Let us be reconciled to God. Let us live to Him. Let us never forget the glory of this truth in all that we do and for all of our lives. Because it is here that there is life, not only for this world, but for the next. And as you live this side of the consummation, and as you live this side of the completion and the finalization of the new covenant, until He comes again and He performs that final tear-wiping and ends all mourning and crying forever, until then... For this time, for this in-between time, remember, Christian, rest, be assured and secured that that which was needed has been accomplished for you in Jesus Christ. God in Christ has reconciled you to Himself through the love of His Son. This is your comfort. This is your sweet hope. Amen? Praise Him and thank Him for life, moments by moments, now and always. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, our Almighty and loving God, we thank You for this, the gift of Your Word, wherein contains the glorious Gospel. Father, we thank You for the accomplished redemption of your Son, our Savior. We thank you for the atonement. We thank you, Father. When you see us, you see the perfect righteousness of your Son. Father, we pray now for the grace to believe what we have heard and to live in ways that honor you above all. We do praise you for your wonder and love and your great mercy and your work in redeeming and renewing your people. Lord God, we pray, help us to believe the truth that you tell us in your word, glorious and is beyond our finite minds, that we are united to Christ and indwelt with the Holy Spirit, indeed new creations. Help us, Father, to live and to think and to pray in a way that brings honor to your name. Lord God, we do pray that as your word goes out and it has gone out, that it will have its full and powerful effect here and around the world. We thank you for the positive developments, Father, that you've been granted to bless us with in this past General Assembly this last week and for the faithfulness to your word that you have granted to so many in your churches. We pray that you would continue to raise up men for the truth and that you would protect your church in truth and that you would protect our church in truth. We do pray for the officers of this church that you would give Uh, give them to love and to care for your people and to bless them in their work 
Father, we do pray for upcoming uh, uh, officer training, Lord, that you would indeed use it as a time for instruction and assessment and discernment of the call to these men. Father, we pray, continue to grow us and bless us. We pray for this congregation, Lord. Be merciful unto us. Provide for our physical needs. Strengthen us spiritually. Keep us from growing, Lord, satisfied. Keep us from growing fearful. But strengthen us and conform, conform us evermore into the image of our King, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We come together as your people now, praying even as our Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.